0: Again, we're going to be in Acts chapter twenty-eight, and uh, we're going to look at verse. We'll be covering verse eleven to thirty-one, from focusing in starting at verse seventeen. So this morning we're f- really coming to uh, not. I don't want to say an end because we're not putting at the period of anything. We're just putting a comma, but we're we're concluding our look at the, all the passages in the Book of Acts through this whole series called Resurgence, which started last September. So we're coming up on a year, and we're we're walking through again, uh, looking at how the Bible records 2000 years ago when the church was first born and what it looked like and then asking the question, what does that look like for us today? And so we've been walking through all these passages and this morning we're gonna talk about kind of the concluding remarks in the book of Acts and how that kind of launches us into kind of the rest of the story, God's story unfolding uh, throughout human history because we're still a part of God's journey. Uh, At the end of the scriptures, there's no period, it's just a comma of his work continuing on in the world. And this morning, we're, we're going to take some time to look at some summary things, specifically some verses towards the end of what Paul quotes from the Old Testament to help us kind of understand where we move, how we move forward. But a part of that, too, in the next three weeks, we're actually going to do a quick little mini series called Taking Hold of the Future. And that is understanding that God's Spirit is for everyone, God's mission is for everyone, and God's power is for everyone. That's some of the takeaways from the book of Acts. But as we prepare for today and then to move forward, one thing that's really important. About, about what we've learned. The, the greatest tragedy for us as followers of Jesus or for us collectively as a church is to get to the end of the book of Acts, hit a period, and then just go back to the way that we were with no change, no difference in the way we live our life, the way we understand God, the way we see the church. Because what we've done over the last year is we've intentionally tried to digest what we've learned on Sunday mornings, unpack it on our community groups during the week, and try to live it out in our lives all the time. Now, if we don't learn from what we've listened to and digested, then we're, we're setting ourselves up to miss what God has for our lives. In fact, us understanding what we've just walked through is not only important and life-giving for us, it's important and life-giving for people around us. Because what we're learning is something that should be transforming and changing the way that we live our lives. Let me put it in this context. When I, when I learned how to drive, they actually, driver's ed, driver's training were two different things. Driver's ed, you just learned the information. Driver's training was hands-on. Anybody remember that? And now they kind of all kind of mixed together. But when I was, when I was taking, uh, taking driver's training, I was at a school that actually had simulators. Anybody remember a simulator? And so before you actually got into a real car with a real instructor, you had to go through a couple weeks of simulation. So you sat in the simulator, they play a little film, and you drive and you crash half the time and it has a steering wheel and a brake and a a gas and all that stuff. And so for two weeks, I'm in this class with some of my friends and we're all going through this and we're learning. And then you finally get to go to the car and everybody's freaked out because now it's real, right? Real cars, real people, real stoplights, everything's real. And I don't know about you, but I've talked to some of my other friends. There was four of us that went into a car with one instructor, because we could have you know one in the passenger, or one driving, and in, three in the back seat. And then the instructor was always in the passenger seat in the front seat. There was always one person, one kid in the car that nobody wanted them to drive, <laughs> because they didn't listen to anything for the two weeks of training in the simulator. And there was this one kid that we had, and we would rotate through. Each of us would take a turn for like 15 or 20 minutes, and then we'd go in the back seat, and then the other guy would go in the front. And I'm not joking, when this kid would get in the driver's seat, the three of us in the back seat would just do this, because we didn't want to look. Because literally, there were multiple times where the instructor grabbed the wheel and corrected him from going into head-on traffic, other times where, you know, they had the brake on their side, and he was working his brake the whole time this kid was driving. It was a nightmare. And we just literally, we, just, we held our breath until this guy was done, and finally we could get out of the car, and one of us who actually knew how to drive could drive, And it was frustrating because we all got the same instruction, but obviously he didn't listen very well and he didn't apply what he was learning. And therefore his life was in danger and so was ours. The same thing is true about when we encounter the scriptures and we listen to what the Holy Spirit has inspired and has sustained for thousands of years for us to learn and to grow in. If we walk away not of listening and letting it saturate our soul, then we're in danger of losing out on things for our life and those around us losing out. And we want to experience all that God has for us. We want to be the church God wants us to be. We want to be followers of Jesus that God's called us to be. So with that in mind this morning, we're going to look at kind of the the launching point for the rest of the story, but to see how the book kind of summarizes. Now, to give context again, before we look at this passage, we'll read verse 11. Uh, actually, I'll start at 17 and go down to the end of the chapter, Acts 28. So remember, over the last number of weeks, we've been from like chapter 21 all the way now to the end. And that starts this journey where Paul, because he's, Talk to people about Jesus. The Jews have pushed back on him. The Romans aren't happy with him, so now he gets taken into custody by the Jews, handed over to the Romans. Remember the last couple weeks, he, he ends up on a ship that gets shipwrecked. He's on an island called Malta. Then he gets another ship, and eventually, now when we get here, he's finally made it to Rome. He's now incarcerated, and he's actually under house arrest, and he, has a, he literally has a soldier with him all the time, but he's allowed to receive guests. People are allowed to come and see him, so he can ask for people to come and to visit him. So that's where we find ourselves, and these are, this is Paul's encounter now that he's in Rome under house arrest. So looking at verse 17 of Acts 28. It says, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews. This is talking about Paul. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had not done anything against our people, ...or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have been asked to see see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain." And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, uh, for with, with regard to this sect, we know that everything or everywhere it is spoken against, talking about faith in Jesus, Christianity, or the way. And remember, these are Jews that hadn't heard about Paul. They still think Paul is a Pharisee who's on their side. They don't know he's actually joined the other team, and he's on Jesus' team, okay? Verse 23, it says, When they appointed him a day, a day for him, they came to him at his lodging, and in great numbers, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Here's the statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years uh, at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So we come to the end of the book, but there's some important things that we'll dial in here specifically uh, in those last few verses in 28 to 30. But before we actually get there, I want to talk about the context that Paul is in, because this is really important. One of the things that we have a tendency to do when we read through the Bible and we look at, at, at what it used to be, we, we, we look at today and say things like this. It's a lot worse than it used to be when, when Paul was around. They had this and this and that, and so they could do this, but we can't do that. And so we start looking at the things going on in the Bible, and we say, well, that can't happen today. That can't really be true. That, that can't work. It worked for them, but it doesn't work for us. Almost, though, we kind of get out of it. Just looking at the context before we actually talk about the last few things that really dial into what God's story requires of us moving forward, but what, is, what does God's story include? What does the rest of the story that God has for all of our lives include? What's the context that we live in today? It's not too different than what Paul lived in, and Paul was able to do successfully what a lot of us don't think is possible, to actually live out the mission of Jesus in the world and tell people about Jesus to see lives transformed and literally influence the world. Because we know from history, Christianity, actually, in its first 200 years, it rocked the world. It grew so rapidly, they had never seen anything like this, and that's why it was a huge threat to Rome, because they didn't know how to to contain it, because you can't contain something. It wasn't a military venture, it wasn't a war, it was the transformation of the human soul, and you can't stop that. So Paul lived this out. So if he could live that out, what does that mean for us? So what does that look for us? What does the rest of the story include for us, which included for Paul? The first thing, look at verses 17 and 18. It includes cultural limitations. So in verse 17, it says, after three days, Paul said this. He called, uh, says, uh, said to Paul, he called together the local leaders of the Jews and they had gathered and he said to them, brothers, though I had, not, had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, he's talking about the Jews, yet I was what? I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So now, Paul's not just in a kind of religious or cultural kind of context of Judaism. He's now in, he's in the Roman context, which is the, the governing authority at his time. And they are against anything that would can be considered an uprising that wouldn't submit to Caesar. So Paul has these limitations that are put over him by the Roman government. But here's what's crazy he's sitting imprisoned, and what is he doing? He's still telling people about Jesus even though the Jews don't want him to tell, tell anybody about Jesus. And the Roman government certainly really is not very happy about it because they have this idea, if this spreads, they called it the way or a sect, it could be detrimental for the Roman Empire. But what is Paul doing? He's still telling people about Jesus. Can you imagine if you were shipwrecked, you were, you were bitten by a snake and you almost died a number of times, and now finally you're in jail for telling you about Jesus, you might actually think about, maybe I should stop this. But he didn't. So I want you to just think about it in our context. We live in a somewhat of a different context. We do have some cultural limitations, but not anything of what Paul had. But think about the the, the culture we live in. We actually have the freedom to assemble as a church. We have a freedom to read the Bible. We have freedom to pray. We have freedom to express our our religious beliefs. We have that freedom now. More and more of those are becoming kind of infringed on in different ca- capacities. In fact, Pew Research did some research over the last couple of years, and this is globally, but is, it applies to the United States as well. They, they would rate that kind of the, the resistance to religious practice in the world used to be considered at a low level. Now it's actually been upgraded to what's called moderate, which means across the board, across the world, because of a lot of different factors and misunderstandings, more and more governments are taking more and more of an active posture to limit the religious expression of the people in their nation. And it's true for us as well. There are things that, that, that you would not be able to do, you used to be able to do even in workplaces, but the government would eliminate some of those things. In public places, the government would eliminate. It doesn't mean that you have to stop. It just means that we have the limitations. But I bring this up because, again, we always think, well, we can't do that because... No, but if Paul, who's sitting in prison, and the Jews don't want it, and the Romans don't want it, but he won't shut up, can do it, guess what that means for us? We can do this. The same spirit that filled Paul is the same spirit that lives in us. And we actually have an advantage over Paul because we don't have the Roman government over us putting us in prison when we tell somebody about Jesus. So basically, I'm just kind of removing excuses if that's what you're wondering what's going on this morning. So there's cultural limitations, but not that will limit us from uh, completing God's mission in the world. Second thing, verses 19 and 20, there is religious resistance. So this is the one that's probably the biggest factor for all of us. And that's verse 19 says but because the Jews objected he says i was compelled to appeal to caesar though i had no charge uh, to bring against my own nation so what's happening is the, the the biggest resistance paul is getting at this point it'll eventually become the roman empire but it's his own people it's the jews It's the religious context that Paul grew up in. It's the religious context that Paul came out of. Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader. He was persecuting the church. He was against what he thought was not God in Jesus. And then when Jesus appeared to him, he obviously switched teams and believed in who Jesus was and how he's transformed and he's changed. But the biggest pushback, the biggest resistance was from a group of people that should have known the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is better than anybody on the planet. It's the people that God came to and called them his own. It's the Jewish people. And of all people, they had the law and the prophets that was revealing to them for centuries the Messiah is coming, this Messiah is coming, this is how he's going to come, this is the way it's going to look, and this is how it's going to unfold. They had it embedded in their scriptures that they should have known. And when Jesus showed up, what did they do? They crucified him. They said, This can't be the Messiah. This is not who, and they rejected him. So what happened is there's this resistance that's there of people who should be people of faith are the ones who are resisting the truth of who God is. Now, why is that so important for us? I've been around for a little while and I've figured something out. The greatest threat to the gospel is not the world. This is gonna sound bad. The greatest threat to the gospel is the church. It is. We're the greatest threat. Why? Because we take this amazing, marvelous narrative of human history where God has remained faithful to people who have been unfaithful for thousands of years, has gone to the greatest lengths by sending his son into the world to die for our sin, to reconcile us back to him, to give us assurance that we will be with him forever and be free from our sin. We've taken all of that, and we dumb it down. And we limit it, and we change it, and we customize it. And then when the real gospel rocks in the door... We're like, no, that can't be true. That can't be really what's happening. That's not what God's doing. And the very truth that God's tried to lay out through scriptures and through human history is the very thing that we push back on. It's true. We have to be aware of this. This is is what we have to deal with. Because we have a tendency to believe enough of the gospel of what works for us, but sometimes not enough of the gospel that works for God. There's a difference. So I've mentioned this term a number of times. In fact, it's going to shape a series that we're going to start in the fall that will be a two-part series on the gospel, and it's the term inoculated. You know what inoculation is? You know when you go in and you don't want to get a disease and they give you a little bit of the disease? And what does it do? It builds up an immunity in you to that disease so that you're not susceptible to it anymore. It makes you a little bit sick, but it doesn't give you enough to kill you. See, the danger is, is that's what happens with the gospel. We get enough of the gospel to feel good about ourselves and to think we're saved but not enough to kill us and actually transform us. See, because here's the danger of the gospel. The gospel has to kill you in order for it to work. It does. That's why we're supposed to die with Christ and raise to life. That's the whole point. And here's the thing that we, this is the tension we live in. Salvation is a beautifully free gift that will cost you absolutely everything. That's the way it works. And so if that's the truth, that means we have to be fighting off this thing that constantly because of our own sin nature and because of our religiousness will resist the very gospel that's supposed to save us because when i the tension i've lived in through, for this whole year in all my own life and even for our church and the church is i keep reading through the book of acts and i keep coming to the same conclusion it doesn't look like today and i'm not talking culture i'm just talking are you kidding me look at what happened to these people looking how how rattled and transformed and offended and turned upside down these people were, that they were literally willing to give everything to follow Jesus. Everything. Because they didn't get just a little bit of the gospel. They got the whole thing. They embraced the whole thing. So we'll talk a little bit more about this in, in a moment, but that's the context that Paul's in. The biggest resistance to what he's sharing are the people that should know the most about what he's saying. Third thing. The story also includes personal receptivity. Verse 28, Paul says this, therefore, let it be known, says this, after he's presented the gospel to the Jews, to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. Why? Because they will listen. This is good news. Now, hear me. There's a culture and there's a religion that fits into Judaism. Culturally, people will grow up as Jewish, or religiously, they'll grow up as Jewish. But so hear me when I'm talking about Jews, I'm not trying to target people. This is, the Jews are the people of God on the face of the planet. That's the people God chose. And out of, the, out of Judaism, out of the Jews, com, comes Christianity. But understanding is that it isn't supposed to be Judaism and Christianity. It's supposed to be all about being God's people. So part of what we have to understand is that, that God chose the Jews not to just have the Jews. He chose the Jews because he loved the Gentiles, too. And this is what Paul comes to this realization. Listen, you people should know, because it's embedded in your history and in your scriptures, that the Messiah is coming and the Messiah is Jesus, but you don't. So therefore, the gospel is going to be given to a group of people who are hungry, who desire to know who God is, and that's the Gentiles. Now, if you are of Gentile descent, which means you're not Jewish, this is really good news for you, because we're not not shut out but it's also good news for the Jew because it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, God loves all people and draws, him to, draws us to him. So this means, though, that there's a group of people, even when, in Paul's day, and there's a group of people even in our day that are hungry for the gospel. And that's why Paul kept going and kept going and kept going. And if you, we read through the book of Acts, there was, there was a pattern that kept unfolding. Paul would show up to a city and he would go to the first place he would go to is where? The synagogue. To speak to his, his fellow brothers and sisters, and then they would get mad, and they would kick him out, and they might try to kill him, or they might try to arrest him, and then where would we go after that? He would end up encountering Gentiles. That's what Peter en- ended up encountering. God said, now you're supposed to go to Cornelius' house. He's a, he's a Gentile. Why? And so there it means that there's a group of people today in our culture, just like in Paul's culture, that are hungry for the gospel. But what does that mean we have to do? That means we have to go to where they are. Here's the cultural shift. People used to come to church by default in our culture. It doesn't happen anymore. It actually hasn't happened for the last 20 years. It used to be a cultural phenomenon in the United States. If you're, if you're an American, you go to church. That is gone by two decades at least. And that means that for people to find Jesus, the majority of people are not going to find Jesus where? In this context. They're not. But you know where they will find him? They're going to find him in our front yard. They're going to find him in a laundromat. They're going to find him in our living room. They're going to find him in a cubicle at work. They're going to find him wherever, in a school. They're, that's where they're going to find him. Why? Because that's where we're going to find followers of Jesus that are sharing his love for them. And even more so in our culture today. Boy, I've heard this over and over again. The church doesn't have a very good reputation right now in our country. It doesn't. Jesus has a pretty good reputation. You bring up Jesus, usually people are a little more favorable. You bring up the church, like, ah, hypocritical, judgmental, don't want anything to do with it, right? That's what we hear. So how much more should we be about reaching people without having to just invite them to church? Because sometimes we're inviting people to the very thing they don't want. But if they discover Jesus, guess what people have a tendency to do when they discover Jesus? They want to be with God's people. Now, I'm not saying, don't, hear me, hear me on this. I'm not saying don't invite people to church, Okay. But you and I have to realize in our culture, we have to be sent. We have to go. This is important. Uh, great conversations we have in our laundry mat at Laundry Love every month. We have a, such a wide range of people that come into the laundromat. Some of them actually go to church. Some of them have church backgrounds. Some of them have no concept of God. But there's one guy who shows up about every other time that we're in there, and he's really interesting because he has made it very clear. Doesn't have a concept for God. Doesn't kind of get the church thing and pushes back on that, but he says the same thing every time when we have long dialogues with him. And that's this. He says, yeah, I, I don't think God's real and the church, I just don't get it. But he says, but what you guys are doing is amazing. <laughs> that's what he says every time. As we're paying for his laundry and having a conversation, providing food for him. He says, like, this is amazing. See, what he's not understanding is he's acknowledging the existence of God because the, God's people are hanging out in his laundromat. And we're praying someday that guy's going to realize, wow, maybe there's something more than just laundry. Maybe there's something more than just these conversations. But it's because a group of people have made a commitment to be every month in that laundromat that I'm convinced someday that guy's got a shot at coming to Jesus. He's hungry for it, and he doesn't even know it yet. So that's the good news for us. The context that we're in, there are still lots of people who are hungry for Jesus. We just got to let him out through our lives. So that's the context we live in. So basically, in a nutshell, to wrap up those three points, you and I have no excuse. If Paul could do it, we can do it too, right? I got an amen from, I think, Lauren there, and so uh, we're moving forward. <laughs> wow, you guys, usually you're a little bit more like, you know, your second service, remember? You guys are, first service is always asleep. You guys are usually warmed up, right? So there you go, thank you. <laughs> so now one of the, there's three other things I want to look at that really in terms of what does the, the rest of the story require of us moving forward after we've walked through the book of Acts. So looking at the last few verses of the chapter, so Paul shifts after he calls these people to him, and now it says that some of them believe, some of them disbelieve. And then he, he quotes Isaiah chapter 6 from the Old Testament, which he's reading their mail because he's reading their scriptures, which is his scriptures too, which is our scriptures, the Old Testament. And he reads something that's very, very offensive to them. And in reading to them, he's trying to help them to see something that they're completely missing. Verse twenty-six, he says this. He says, "says Go to this people. Say you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive." So Paul's saying to a group of people, "You've heard this. You've experienced this. You have it in your history. You have it in your scriptures." The very person that I serve in Jesus is the very one that we've been looking forward to for centuries, and he's here, and you have this, but you can't hear, and you can't see, because you refuse to. And this is important because for us, and we're going to look at this in a moment, I just want you to let this capture you. 2,000 years ago, a group of people were so transformed by the presence of Jesus, his death, or resurrection, and life, they literally transformed the culture around them inside of 200 years. That's amazing. When you think, oh, what's the hope for our country? What's the hope for the world? It isn't any political leader. It isn't one nation over another. It's the church living out the reality of who Jesus is. It's always been that forever. God's people are the hope of the world because God dwells with his people and he wants to bless the world through his people and the ultimate blessing comes through Jesus. And if that's the case... And Paul said this 2,000 years ago, which was a quote from hundreds and hundreds of years earlier from the prophet Isaiah, that there's a potential that the people who should know better aren't listening and aren't seeing the God who's in front of them. If that's true, then you and I have to take these to heart for ourselves. So the rest of the story requires of us, first thing is this, verse 27, seeing the truth with our eyes. So Paul says that their eyes, what, their eyes were closed, but if they're open, then they could actually see. So the phrase that their eyes have been closed or their eyes are closed literally means to be unwilling to learn or to evaluate something fairly. So it's a sense that it isn't a matter of looking at something and trying to figure it out, but it's just outright refusing to learn. So what Paul was saying of the Jews, which we have to be careful is not true of us, is that when they were presented with the Messiah they had been longing for, they closed their eyes because they didn't want to give him a shot. They refused to embrace who he was and so they closed their eyes to keep him shut out. They didn't even give him a shot and and then they missed him. Now, how about for us? Is that true for us? Is there things that God wants to do in our lives that he wants to reveal more of who he is? And I've said this over and over again. If the Jesus you serve today isn't any bigger or grander or more important or more significant in your life than the Jesus you knew when you first came to him, you haven't fully embraced who Jesus is yet. Jesus doesn't change, but our understanding of him has to change. There has to be these moments, and this is what happened with Paul. Paul thought he had a read on God until Jesus showed up and boom. He's got this whole understanding that now all makes sense. A guy who had used all the scriptures to defend against Jesus was now using the scriptures to defend Jesus because this moment where his mind was just blown, the Holy Spirit opened up to him. His eyes could see what was right in front of him. Man, and and I know I have so many of those markers in my life where boom, right in front of me, God opens my eyes to something that's always been there, but I've been too, too consumed with myself and my eyes have been closed and I can't even see it. Important things that happen, and one uh, I've had a number of those recently. As I've had actually one of the, the classes I'm in right now in my program has been so—it's uh, one of the most difficult courses, but it's forced me to dig into the scriptures like I haven't done in a lot, of, lot of years. And there's these moments I'm sitting and studying, and boom—it's like God says, "Yeah, this has always been there. You just haven't taken the time to see it. Your eyes haven't been open to it." So here, let me just—this is just me, okay? I'm just gonna give you a little insight and in some of one of those like aha moments for me, like revolutionized for me. It's probably about six weeks ago. So, so in, in the Old Testament, God calls Israel and just delivers them out of, is going to deliver them out of Egypt, out of slavery for over 400, 400 years. And if you remember the story, he goes to Moses in the desert and he encounters him through a burning bush and he's having a conversation with Moses and he's telling Moses, you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to lead my people out of, out of Egypt, out of bondage to freedom. And if you remember the conversation, one of the first things that Moses says to God, he says, who am I? Like, Almost like, God, you got the wrong guy, right? Who am I that, that, that you would call me to do this? Who am I? Who am I going to? Am I going to stand before Pharaoh? Which, by the way, Pharaohs in that day were considered deities by their own people. So this is this battle. So it's like, I'm going to go before Pharaoh. Who am I? And in like three verses later, intentionally, God uses Hebrew to make a play on words because Moses says, who am I? And then what does God say? He says this. Tell, I'll tell you who, I'm, who sent you. I am sent you i want you to capture and then for the first time in scriptures we get to exodus chapter three we've already been through genesis now in exodus it's the first time that god identifies himself as the name john looney mentioned this earlier the name yahweh god gives himself a name but he gives it in the context of this and this is what's so beautiful about moses saying who am i and god says i am and it's a comprehensive statement this is what he's saying to Moses because then Moses had said, because then God goes on and says, I will be with you because I am. And this is, what is, this is what just hit me. God gives himself the name Yahweh, tied to this reality of I am, to say something to his people, not just to Moses, but to all his people. Embedded in his name is this reality I will always be with you and always be everything you need. That's his name. That's the name God gave himself. And when I'm sitting there reading this, I started to cry because I realized that is my biggest deal with God is when things are going great, God's with me. When it's not, he's gone. Anybody relate? And God's saying, it's in my name. My very nature is never, and that's why you, you figure God would have given up on us by now, right? He keeps making this decision to align himself with sinful people. And it's like, how much more does he have to do to demonstrate I'm not going anywhere? And I love this because what he's saying to Moses is, is proved out in the Exodus when they get into the desert. He's saying to them, I will always be with you and always be everything that you need. I talked about this last week. And what was he? Manna when they were hungry, water when they were thirsty, and clothes that never wore out for 40 years in the desert. They had a cloud and a fire to lead them day and night where God wanted them to go. He never left them. And for me, that was one of those moments like I had a sense, it was a celebration and a repenting for the fact that I questioned that God would ever be present in my life. So that's just a snippet of me. It's one of those poof, changes the way I live my life. We have to have those. That means our eyes are open, but if our eyes are closed, we're not willing to learn anything else. And that's when we're in risk of being inoculated. Why? Because we get enough of it to make us feel okay, but not enough of us to really penetrate into our hearts and to transform us. Second thing, the rest of the story also requires hearing the truth with our ears. So Paul, quoting Isaiah, references that their ears, they, with their ears, they can barely hear, and that actually literally means to, to to turn the volume down so much in your ears that you can barely hear. Because what hearing was about in this context was listening for one purpose: it was listening to obey. The only way you knew if somebody listened is if they did what you said. And so what was happening is that they didn't, because they didn't want to obey, they refused to listen. That's what Paul's saying. Which means on the flip side of that, if we are listening, that means we're listening for one purpose to the voice of God, to do what he says. This I'm coming to this understanding in my life in the last number of months that we have so elevated, and it should be elevated grace that we've forgotten obedience. There's a balance. Grace gives us the ability to obey because we don't, o- obedience doesn't gain us access to God or somehow make us better so that God accepts us. Grace does that. But grace gives us the context to say, now I get to choose to obey. Not because I have to, but I get to, that should be a more, better motivation than having to do anything. But so what, what Paul's saying to a group of people is you're, you're not hearing. And the reason you're not hearing is because you have no interest in obeying. So you're not going to hear the voice of the Lord. We can all raise our hand on this one. Anybody ever struggle to hear God's voice in your life? Now, I'm not saying this is true for all of us, but I'm coming to grips with people I counsel and people I work with and in my own life. One of the reasons that we struggle to hear God's voice is because we're not obeying him. And, I, and I've come to realize, and I've said this to people sometimes, I don't even take my own advice. I can't hear the voice of God. What do I do? I can't hear the voice of God. I say, what's the last thing he said to you, from the scriptures or through the Holy Spirit? And they'll say it. I said, did you do it? No. Why don't you go back and do what he told you to do, and maybe you'll hear his voice. I think it unlocks the ability to hear. If what? We're leaning in to say, okay, I'm going to listen for the one purpose. I'm going to do what you say. In fact, Jesus said the strongest statement Jesus makes in what we call the Sermon on the Mount is at the very end, at the end of chapter 7, which is DE1 if you've taken the class. We get to the end of it. Because he says some really hard stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. Really like turning the other cheek. Like if somebody wants to borrow something, you give it to them. All this crazy stuff that we don't understand. And then this is what he says at the end, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, talking about obedience. This is what he says. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man or wise man who built his house on the rock. He says, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Let me point something out. The rock in this passage is not Jesus, it's obedience to Jesus. There's a difference, because people, oh, my my life's built on the rock. If it's built on the rock, you'll obey the rock. So Jesus is saying, if you hear these words, if you want to build the foundation of your life, you build it on what? You do what I've asked you to do. Going on, verse 26, and it says, Anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and it was a great as it, uh, uh, fall of, of it. And so when you look at that, you realize, embedded in all of the scriptures is this call to obedience. In what we call the Great Commission, Jesus said, you baptize them, but after you baptize them, what do you do? You teach them to obey everything I commanded you. When God gave the covenant at Mount Sinai to his people, to Israel... The, the covenant side for Israel was what? You obey and I will be your God and you will be my people. Obey. Now, why would God say that? Because God is this big ogre up in heaven and just loves people to have to obey him and submit to them. No, 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 because God knows what's best for our lives. And if we understand that, that means when God says this, I do it. Why? Because God knows the be- better than we do the difference between good and bad, right and wrong, good and evil. God knows better. But sometimes we want to be our own God and that's when we get into trouble. So obedience is a key for us to understand. If we want to hear with our ears, if we want to turn up the volume, we turn up the volume by what? Saying, I will do what God's called me to do. When I read the scriptures, my default will be, I will be obedient to what God's asked to do. Then there's a final thing, verse 27. The rest of the story requires understanding the truth with our hearts. So Paul says, quoting from Isaiah, for this people's heart have grown dull. And it says, if they would just understand, they would understand with their heart. So the concept of growing dull has to do with being spiritually insensitive. It means I, I'm not sensitive to God's working in my life anymore. I've become dull to it. I've become numb, in a sense, to the reality of God in my life. And I think all of us can relate to that because there's certain moments where we have deep passion for God. And then we, we, I've had so many people, I don't feel anything. And this is why we can't base our walk with Jesus on feeling and emotion. But why don't we feel anything? I think there's a reason that we become dull, we become numb to God, we become callous for a number of reasons. Like there's three things I think that are, seem to happen for most people when we're figuring like I, I don't, I can't f- connect with God, I don't feel it. One of them is this thing called repetition. Repetition of our faith is good in creating disciplines, but when it becomes repetition for repetition's sake, it loses the heart of why we're doing it. And that's why sometimes liturgies in church are so important. When they have significance, but when they're just liturgies, that means you go through the motions, but you forget why you're even going through the motions. You just go through the motions because you're supposed to. Then you've lost connection with sensitivity to the Lord. That's why when we do communion, we want to make sure that we're not doing this just because Jesus said do it, but because we're doing it because there's significance to it in our lives of why Jesus said to do it. But, but sometimes that's true for us. Some of us have the same routines and they've been good routines but sometimes those routines are the very things that become barriers to actually connecting with God because we're so consumed with doing them we don't remember why we're doing them. We've lost the connection. And that was the Jews. The Jews had ritual after ritual after ritual and they had the law and they were good at keeping the law but they forgot what the law was about. The law was the way they related to God. They took God out of the law and it just became law. And that's where we get, that's where we become insensitive. There's another reality of what happens of why we become callous to the Lord, and that is because of pain in our lives. See, when we go through painful situations, whether it be physically or emotionally, relationally, we have a tendency to close up, to defend ourselves so that we don't incur any more pain in our life. And so many times, one of the defaults is is when we go through a difficult time and you're a follower of Jesus and you can't figure out why God would allow this to happen in your life, you close up to him. Because you blame him for your pain. And so then what happens, you become callous because of your own pain. And because of that, even as God moves into your life, you're still resisting him. Why? Because you don't want to experience more pain and you don't trust him anymore. So you've closed up. But if you would be willing to open and trust the Lord, you would have that sensitivity because God would come and he would actually bring softness to your heart. And then there's a third one that all of us deal with and we have to be honest with it. And one of the reasons we become insensitive and dull is what the scripture says and numb is because of our own sin. Sin cre- is, is like Novocaine. The more you do it, the more numb you become to it. And the more numb you become to the reality of God actually speaking into your life because when you sin once and you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you make a change and then you sin again and then you don't feel as convicted and then you sin again and yeah, you know you're convicted but you really don't. And then the third or the fourth or the fifth or the sixth time, you don't even, you don't even flinch. You just keep doing it over and over and over again. Why? Because you've lost the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit. Because why? You stopped listening to him. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul talks about that, about the the numbness that comes over us and the insensitivity that we have to the Lord. So as we're, we're making this transition from resurgence into living a resurgent life, it means that you and I have to come to grips with we are in danger at times of not listening and not seeing and not feeling what God is doing. And we don't want to become like the people that Paul addressed in the last few verses of this book that says, listen, you're always going to be hearing, but you're never going to be perceiving. You're going to see, but you're not going to really see what's going on. You're, you're going to miss it. Why? Because you don't want to follow Jesus and you don't want to obey. So you've just closed your eyes and closed your ears to the reality of God who's in front of you. God is present with us. God is at work in people's lives. God has a mission and a purpose in our church and in our city and all around the world and he's called us to say yes to it. But we have to stop ignoring him. We have to stop disobeying him. We have to be willing to say, okay, God, I'm all in. I'll give you my life. I love the last part of Isaiah 6 and then what Paul quotes and it says, if they'll open their eyes, if they'll open their ears and if they'll give me their hearts then what does he say? I will heal them. I'll transform them. I'll change them. I'll save them. They'll become my people. I'll be their God. That's the whole point. And that's what God has for us today. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and join me because we're going to conclude with one, one last song. But before the, uh, we do that, I, I wanted to highlight uh, something significant that we've been uh, navigating, walking through this whole journey in resurgence and all that we've, we've walked through. So it was a, a year ago in September that we started this journey, this almost year-long journey through through the book of Acts and it will be a full year because we'll take up the next three weeks to kind of give us kind of as we move forward taking hold of the future kind of a thing. But the, f- the week before we were going into this series when I was praying the Lord highlighted two specific points of response that he wanted us to be aware of that would cause us to miss the significance of the journey that we'd be on together. And the first one came in the form of what we would call Apathy. Which would say, here's a new season of life for a church. Here's a new opportunity that God may be working something in my life. But I'm going to make the decision to do nothing. I'm just going to be. I've always been good. Church is pretty good. Life is okay. Pastor John can get all excited. We can pray for the Holy Spirit. People can get healed. That's fine. But I'm just going to do what I do. I'm just going to be the same person and let everybody else get excited about it. But I'll just remain the same. And then there's a second one god highlighted it's a little bit deeper than apathy see apathy says i choose to do nothing the second thing is resistance and resistance goes beyond i choose to do nothing and says i choose not to do that as we've journeyed through the book of acts there's been things that we don't fully understand and things that we we can't explain fully and and some of us even out of our own fear, the fear of, of how the Holy Spirit works or the power of God showing up or, or God calling us out of our life to mission in our life or into a different kind of life, we become afraid. And last night, a group of leaders were together. We were kind of looking forward for the next year and we were praying together at the end of our meeting and the Lord spoke to somebody and it's just a beautiful picture and totally accurate. What is the core of resistance is fear. That's why we dig our heels in with God is because we're afraid. We're afraid of, we don't know, we're afraid of the unknown. We're afraid God might ask us to give up something that's valuable to us. We don't really trust. So the reason we resist is because we don't trust God. But if we're actually willing to trust God, we are sitting here today worshiping Jesus because there's a group of people 2,000 years ago that trusted Jesus with everything everything their relationships their finances their lives and they started this journey that called the church that we get to live out two thousand years later because they gave everything for him again salvation is the free gift that joyfully costs you everything because the life that you choose to live apart from god is not the life that you really want to live you might think it is but the life that god gives you is the destiny that God has put in every person who says yes to him, which may be difficult and may be painful and may be challenging, but I'll guarantee it is always fulfilling because it is bigger than us. It's about God's mission. And there will be a day when you will look back on your life and my hope for each one of us and my hope for myself is that I not, will not stand before Jesus someday and look back on my life with any sense of regret. That Boy, I should have stopped living for myself. And just surrender to God and let Him do what He wanted to do in my life. Would you just close your eyes as we prepare to respond? Any time that there's a call to to respond to God, hear me in our church. And if you're visiting, I'm glad that you're here. But it's the sensitivity of the moment. I'm never here to get into a test of wills with anybody. I'm never here to battle anybody. When we open the scriptures, I want us to hear the Holy Spirit speak the words of Jesus to us so that we can respond obediently. And so wherever you're at right now, I want you not to hear the voice of Pastor John. I want you to hear the voice of the Lord to you. What is God saying to you? Have your eyes been closed to the reality of who He is? Have your ears, the volume, been turned down because you don't want to obey? Or have you become numb to the reality of who God is because of your sin in your life or pain or routine? Whatever it might be, I know right now that the Lord is is pushing in by His Spirit into your life right now, and He's calling you to surrender. And that surrender looks like trust. Are you willing to say, I give everything to you, God, and trust if it means that everything in my life has to change, if it means one thing in my life has to change? I'll give it all. I'll surrender everything so that ultimately I can be the person you created me to be. I can live the life that you want me to live. I can fulfill the purpose that you gave your people to reach the world with the good news of Jesus, of what you've done for us. So whatever it might be, would you just allow yourself to be humble enough to be open to what God's saying? And in a moment as we sing, would you use the song we're about to sing as a point of surrender to the Lord. In fact, when I'm done praying, we're gonna go into the song. The front up here is open. If you would like to come forward, even to get on your knees, as a, as a some of you need, may need a physical point of obedience to say, Jesus, I'm, I'm struggling in my heart, but I'm gonna make my body obey. I'm gonna give it myself and make myself available to you. So the front is open for that. So Lord Jesus, we come right now to you. And we know, Lord, that we are on this journey, not putting a period, but knowing that now this series through acts now sets us up for the future you want us to have the people you want us to be the mission you want us to embrace the power you want us to live in and the spirit who dwells in us so lord would you give us the courage right now to admit that there are things that you want to address in our lives and would you come now and would you disarm us so that we might receive all that you have for us today we thank you jesus in your name amen let's stand together we'll sing together